minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Allons-y! Would you like a jelly baby? episode of two drew freaks this time out we're going to be having a special which we're going to be dealing with a person who travels through time wears a blue suit runs around with a ginger character and has died a couple of times no i'm not talking about superman i'm talking about the greatest export from britain that is named andrew leyland doctor who or the doctor and uh, surprisingly enough uh for the show, which we haven't really decided not to title yet, um, we're going to be talking about uh, some of our favorite episodes of the uh, Doctor's Adventures, and uh, we're going to be starting off with what a lot of us consider to be one of the best episodes of Doctor Who, uh, City of Death. Uh, with me today, uh, if I can make it through this, I've got a couple of guests here. Um, first of all, I've got Mr. Andrew Leyland, a actual British person. Hello. Uh, I've got uh, Mr. Chris Honeywell, an actual New Yorker. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and I've got Mr. Will Robinson, an actual Floridian. Hello. <laughs> and I can't like believe I said, you just called him Will Robinson, and I'm, suddenly I'm just hearing danger, mm, danger. Yes. <laughs> you just now figured that out. Hey, it took... Yeah, because I'm just used to you being Bill. So it's... Well, that's true, yes. I sometimes throw people off with that. It, it... I yeah, it, it took me what like a year to to be like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yes, today, uh, even despite the fact that I sound like the uh, squeaky voice teen from The Simpsons, we're going to try and make it through an episode of me talking about uh, perhaps the best Doctor Who episode that has ever been filmed, City of Death from 1979. Um I had a synopsis all written, well, not written up, but I had a synopsis all put together and was ready to go with this. Unfortunately, God decided to strike down my voice and, you know, smite me for my uh, injustice or what the hell ever. So Andrew Leyland, who is an actual British person, has probably actually, uh, you know, met the doctor quite a few times because he's all around Britain. Yeah, right. Uh, is going to be uh, delivering a synopsis and then we're going to talk about the show. So, Andrew, if you want to allow me to cough up a lung here while I'm on <laughs> you, go, go away and die. And then when you finish, you can come back and join us. Uh, I'll just regenerate. <laughs> City of Death is credited to David Agnew and was first transmitted on the 29th of the 9th, 79 through the 20th of the 10th, 1979 on BBC One. The Doctor and Romana are enjoying a holiday in Paris, 1979, conveniently, given when it was filmed, when they become aware of a fracture in time. During a visit to the Louvre, they see Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. The Doctor purloins from a stranger, Countess Scarlione, a bracelet that is actually an alien scanner device. He, Romana, and a private detective named Duggan are then invited to the chateau home of Count Scarlione, where they find hidden in the cellar six additional Mona Lisas, all of them originals. The Count is revealed as an alien called Scaroth, last of the Jagaroth race. He was splintered in time when his ship exploded above primeval Earth and in his 12 different aspects has since been guiding mankind's development to a point where time travel is finally possible. His intention is to go back and prevent the destruction of his ship. To finance the final stages of this project, overseen by the misguided scientist Kerensky, he plans to steal the Mona Lisa from the Louvre and then secretly sell the multiple copies that one of his earlier splinters has forced Da Vinci to paint. The Doctor realises that the Count must be prevented from carrying out his plan, as the explosion of the Jagaroth ship provided the energy that initiated life on Earth. Following Skaros' trail in the TARDIS, he travels back to primeval Earth. Duggan fells Skaros with a punch, thereby ensuring that history stays on its proper course. And I just ripped that synopsis off from the BBC website. But doesn't matter. That's a brilliant synopsis, and it works perfectly. It, it basically tells everything that happened in the episode, uh, gets you the characters in there, and gets you sort of a general idea of what's going on. So good on you for... It's uh, amazingly succinct for, for a yes. four-part TV show. It's very good. Better than I would have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it was good, that. Yeah, that's the one thing that a lot of people who are watching Doctor Who nowadays don't seem to notice that the original shows, even though episodes were, or even though seasons were only, um, like, three actual shows, those shows were sometimes divided up into four or six parts. So uh, an actual entire show would be almost a two-hour event. So, um, uh, but City of Death is perhaps one of the greatest ones. And it's, like you said at the beginning, Andy, it was written you know, pseudonymly by uh, David Agnew, but uh, we all pretty much know who the actual writer of it was. And yeah, it's, it's um, easy to tell. I've got um, Don't Panic, which is Neil Gaiman's book on Douglas Adams. Uh, Douglas Adams was the script editor 
at the time for the show. This was his second script for Doctor Who, his first being The Pirate Planet. The script was originally called The Gamble in Time and was by, oh, I knew this and now I can't remember because I watched the episodes with the little text commentary on. Uh, David Fisher and... David Fisher, that's the one. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Apparently the script wasn't in a good state when it came time to film it. So Douglas Adams and the then producer of the show, Graham, wasn't Graham Hinchcliffe at this point, was it? Philip Hinchcliffe, it was Graham, yeah. Locked themselves in Adams's house over a weekend. Fueled by nothing but whiskey and coffee, they wrote these four scripts from Friday to Monday. Um, it's quite remarkable how good it is, given how it was written. Oh, well, I, I, I've got to attribute a lot of that to the fact that uh, um, Adams is just a very clever writer. And you can tell throughout the entire show, there's a lot of Adams' voice in the show. And it actually oh, suits yeah. the doc really well oh it's it's well, tom baker yeah I, i'm i'm sure i'm sure actually the doctor influenced thomas out you know grow as a little as a young prat he probably got a lot of uh you know doctor no, who the hitchhiker's, the hitchhiker's guide stuff that didn't come out till the early 80s and baker had been doing doctor who since what, 75? Yeah, but yeah, and I was thinking even the, pre, you know, before that, you know, when, you know, from the, from the very beginning of Doctor Who, he probably was watching it, you know, some of the, the younger version, and the, you know, in the Peter Cushing movies and stuff like that, you know, Doctor Who was probably just, a, you know, was like, I'm trying to think of what the analog is in America, I guess it would be Star Trek or something like that, but it's actually, beyond, it's more like something between Star Trek and a sitcom, you know? that's been running for or a soap opera would probably be even more um well and it's it's also had all the aspects of that it's had your sort of romance it's had uh your action adventure it's, type feel it's had a sort of spy feel your low budget it's had very <laughs> science fiction yeah you know it's uh it's been a myriad of things but this time out it's really uh just a, a fun sort of chase show um uh, with with an incredibly, incredibly great cast. Um, let's talk about some of the, especially uh, some of the cast. Uh, anyone want to go first? Well, in addition to Tom Baker and Lala Ward as the Doctor and Romana, mm-hmm. uh, Baker and Lala Ward were big fans of Douglas Adams. The Douglas, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, actually started on radio in '78. Okay. So he was working on the scripts for Hitchhikers whilst he was script editing Doctor Who. So they managed to corral a brilliant cast into this, only three of which actually got to go on location in Paris, which is quite the shame, really. Tom Baker and Lala Ward went over to Paris. The big, the, where it's... the big shame was that they couldn't bring all the handlers so they, and, and guys who worked the robotics to bring K-9. I wanted K-9, and I was just like, something's wrong because they did the, like... K-9's going to be in this where he just ducks his head in the TARDIS and goes, hello, K-9, well, see you later. And it's just like, oh, damn, there's not going to be any K-9. Yeah, that's true. One of the the things about the location filming, they managed to do the location filming in Paris for less than it would cost to shoot in a studio. But the the trade-off for that was they had to keep the cast down. So there are only six speaking parts in this entire four-part series. 
That works uh, out well, I voice, think. I think that adds to yeah. it. Uh, the, the voices that you hear at the beginning of the Jaggeroth are just actors who were used later in the serial as extras. So they, they kept it very tight. The only people who went to Paris were Tom Baker and Lala Ward and Duggan, played by Cham, Tom Chadbon, and the director, uh, Michael Hayes. And he's talked about uh, something Chris talked about before we came on the show, that they filmed in Paris pretty much without a permit. Mm-hmm. They would just plant a camera and shoot. And there were certain times where they, they were forbidden from filming in certain places and all Michael Hayes did was he planted his camera on a public path told Tom and Lala to go to where he wanted them and film them from the private path because he couldn't stop the actors being there he could just stop you filming on it so they did an awful which is why there's an awful lot of shots in this where there's lots of zooms and pulling back yes where they didn't have permission to film so the director cheated a lot of the exterior shots that you can tell that were filmed in Paris uh, have a different uh, look from the video and also most of them are unfortunately just either Tom and Lala running or uh, well it's basically them running from one, one place, place to, to another basically that's yeah. what it is but but like I was like they're really darting through traffic you know they're 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 truly darting and and you can tell the you could see the difference of a of a crowd shot or a public shot that that isn't controlled that's that's wild uh, in the wild like that because the reactions of people there's there was one shot where he came <laughs> spinning across the road and he sort of had to duck down and and push by this guy and like he had to use both his hands to sort of move the guy out of his way and and just budged by him and went running down the sidewalk and the look on the guy's face is just like what the? I guess Tom Baker was a little peeved because he was used to when they would film in public in Britain, drawing a crowd and people like Tom Baker. Can I have your autograph, ladies? Going Tom Baker. Here's my underwear, you know, and all that. Yeah. But in in Paris, they were, they didn't have Doctor Who on TV, so they were just like, what What is it with this guy? There's one great shot, and I wish I should have written down the time of it. It's in the fourth part, I think. Where there's a guy who looks like Doctor Who, he's got the same, he's got a law, like the scarf almost down to the ground, and he's wearing sort of the same sort of jacket, but he's a skinny sort of nerdy guy in the background, and I was like, I wonder if they'd shot that shot just to get this guy in the background who's pretty much dressed like the Doctor and doesn't even know it. But yeah, I remember as a kid thinking... This is this has that 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 feel of like let's go on vacation to Paris and we'll put a show on around it, you know. It's funny you should mention that on one of the the tracks on the DVD you can watch the episode with production subtitles and behind the scenes tidbits. Tom wasn't best impressed that in Paris he was largely ignored because like you said no one knew who he was in favor of Lala Ward dressed in a schoolgirl outfit. She went down a treat. Oh yeah. Well, somebody told me that they designed like a hot, hot, like skin tight space girl suit for her originally. Yes. And she's like, yeah, I, I don't want pervy people wanking off to me. So she got into a schoolgirl outfit. <laughs> yeah. Her, her idea behind this was apparently she wanted to wear something that the audience would identify with. She wore it for little girls in the audience, so they would go, "All oh, right." Romana wears a school uniform. I don't feel bad about wearing mine. It backfired on us yes, slightly. Yeah, it was, it was it, more it was for the, the, dads. the dads. Yeah, 
yes, who got interested in the school uniform. So she never really wore it again. But yeah, she originally had like a silver Jerry Anderson-inspired catsuit, which she rejected. And the, and, saying, Bring that. And, and, and the dads are, yeah. <laughs> uh, but going in the cast, Duggan, played by Tom Jadbone, is brilliant. Duggan oh, is yes. fantastic through this entire part. I so wish that Duggan would have been a if not a companion, at least a recurring character yeah. within like, uh, like later episodes, because I, I believe he had uh, guest spots on Doctor Who, uh, you know, uh, after this, but he never actually played Duggan again, because Duggan is such a wonderful, uh, ridiculous, and also very top and very Douglas Adams character. Um, his his uh, whole just trope of let's punch it. Or let's just what whatever we deal <laughs> punch with, it, it, jump through it, whatever, it, jump on it, break it, is just so uh, it, it 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 clashes so much with the very uh, intellectual and thought process of the Doctor, but it makes a great dichotomy between the two. I really enjoy the character of Duggan. Well, I like it because well, the Doctor's sort of scornful of Duggan. You want to hit everything in the head. You want to hit everything in the head, but. There usually comes a point where it's like, all right, Duggan. <laughs> it's someone in And in the end of it, the actual uh, Duggan hitting someone in the head uh, saves the entire planet and saves the human race. Yeah, and, and it's great because you can see that, like, Tom, you, you know, Doctor Who enjoy, he, like, full smiles at him. Like, That's probably the most important punch in history. <laughs> well, plus he fixes the sonic screwdriver at one point, too when it's not working and he takes it and he smacks it against the door he's like hey what are you doing oh hey it works now look at that uh, Romana had a sonic screwdriver as well did you notice that yeah, I'm, oh yeah, I, I, Romana I, had her own screwdriver yeah yeah that's, that's when... there's something about a 125 year old school girl that gets much well, back with uh, Duggan for a second. She's getting uh, drunk on sonic screwdrivers. Sitting here in the corner waiting. Uh, did anybody when when, uh, when Duggan smashed through the wall? Did you think either you know Duggan smash or picture the Kool Aid Man spa- uh, going through the styrofoam brick wall? Yeah. Hey, hey Duggan. Oh yeah! What I love is this was such a low budget episode that it was basically the actor playing Duggan jumping off screen and then somebody dubbing in like <laughs> glass breaking and stuff. It was awesome. Yeah, it's very cleverly structured yeah. though to make up for its lack of budget. And I'm, I think, I think the opening shot of the Jaggeroth spaceship blowing up is fantastic oh, yeah. for the time oh, that yeah. it was done. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. for, the, the, for it's, a great, it's a great uh it's a great design of a spaceship. It's got a sort of um I wanna say Johnny Quest type feel of that sort of walking spider eye thing that you may have seen at the early uh, It reminds me of a lot of ships Johnny in episode Quest. two of the, yeah. the, the prequel trilogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things as well that always bugs me when people criticise Doctor Who's budget is you've got to look at it contextually. The show was being made for less money than a standard drama series. So the fact that it could pull this stuff off, it's like when people slag off the original Trek. And if you look at Bonanza, Bonanza couldn't make the Ponderosa look convincing. Yet yeah. every week, Star Trek made an alien planet yeah, and, to varying degrees of success. And meanwhile, there's now, a at this billion time, real, like... The, 
cowboy spreads all around where they were filming. There's no space old spaceships that you could. Well, we'll just use that old spaceship for a set. No, you got to do it from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so for me, for 1979 BBC Television, this is great. I think the location film is all glorious. It does reek of look. We went on location. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, if you if you actually are on location. Flaunted. It's like if you Christmas have party. I that's what I always pictured it as. I always figured it's like, hey, good, the actors get a break, you know? They get to film a few scenes and run around in, in Paris, you know. That's how I've always, you know, it's like, oh okay, the cast of the Brady Bunch wanted to go to Hawaii. So we'll film them surfing and stuff and film a story around on sets around it. When I was a kid, I hated that shit. I hated the cheesy effects. They, I was always like, ugh, so cheesy. Now as an adult, all that stuff is like the most delightful thing about it. You know, I love it now. It, it's part of the appeal of the show. Yeah. It was overly ambitious for its budget, but there's nothing wrong with that. Well, and I, I think the ambition, I think the lack of budget is oftentimes made up for the quality of scripts and the quality of the actual science. Now, Granted, they got it wrong in this episode by saying that uh, the Jaggeroth ship left Earth 400 million years ago. Yeah, they missed a couple of hundred thousand years. Yeah, if if, if they'd gone like 4 billion years ago, it would have been better. But, but, you know, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, it it doesn't really take away from the fact. And, you know, it's, it's a nice concept that this alien ship exploding at the beginning of time, you know, at the primordial pool was the cause of evolution is an interesting idea. And it's something, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, your average science fiction show, you know, probably wouldn't be able to, you know, take into account or probably wouldn't been able to deal oh, with. Oh, well, there- so uh, Doctor Who you know, as an innovator in this type of stuff. Well, there were there were elements of quantum physics in this one and stuff like that. But I mean, the, the it was a little weird. It I. I forgot at the end that it was like the ship exploding that that radiated our I don't know how Doctor Who knew that but um to me that was sort of like okay we need a reason why they can't leave but you didn't really need that reason why the human race wouldn't be there because if he left if his spaceship got away he sort of he sort of hand tooled the human race you know he made sure the pyramids got built he he got the human race to a level where he could build his time machine. So if he leaves, his- if he leaves, that's not going to happen. There might it might be like, you know, gorillas, you know, there there might not be yeah. civilization and stuff. So it didn't really need that to have a motivation for him not to leave. It all had a nice little qua- either way it had a nice little quandary in it cuz either way, you know, and and his blowing up the ship making the human race also makes it possible for him to splinter off and you know it, it makes a sort of self-contained time loop where everything depends on everything else and mm-hmm. you can't take anything out without negating everything so it, it almost doesn't work but it work but in in four episodes they keep it simple enough to where you're not like going wait what a lot of time travel stories, you have to sort of pause and go, all right, what's going on here? And, and arrange everything in time with this one. They keep it, they keep it 
clean and easy as to what's going on. You know, they it's a, it's a mystery story, so there's a lot of you know slowly revealing information as to what's going on. But uh, it's yeah, it's a nice, just nice little piece of mashup science fiction with like British mystery story, you know, detective story. Yeah, like like a film noir. Yeah, bit where you know where you've got the gumshoe detective. I mean, because, and I think some of you guys have mentioned this on other podcasts that a good story, or, or in this case, we have a science fiction story. But if you take the science fiction elements out, this is still a good story about stealing the Mona Lisa. If you take out all the science, you know, and this could be a film noir story with the count and all the well, of course, all the obvious bad guys mm-hmm. that wear black hats. Right, even in the Louvre, mm-hmm. <laughs> just standing around. Well, that yeah, you know, that I mean, scene it, in the Louvre when yeah. you see everybody standing around, you know who are the extras and who are the characters you're going to see more of in the just just by the way they're there's dressed. like a big sign pointing yeah. over his head, bad guy, suspicious. bad guy, suspicious, <laughs> suspicious, suspicious character. And I guess armed robbery is a common thing in cafes in France. Yeah, because every- everyone just plays no attention. <laughs> And then yeah, later, no. when Tom Baker co- comes in, he says, "Oh, hello! Remember me? Yes, I was the man that was robbed, uh, <laughs> that, that was held at gunpoint the other day." Well, before that, that th- they broke in the night before. They they met at the cafe. They broke into the cafe and were serving themselves. And I'm assuming that when we see that shot later, that the people of the cafe came in and opened up and found them there and said, "Okay, well, we'll just keep serving them or whatever," you know. So yeah, that was the most slack cafe in all of Paris. But once again, it's Douglas Douglas Adams. You know, I mean, in in when, it, you know, it, well, pretty much all the universes that he created, things just happen. You know, they have the, yeah. the police don't get involved. The police are don't figure in in the universe unless it's for some you know comedic reason, like Duggan. You know, but there's not going to be just a regular you know like somebody at the cafe going call the call the police that, that ruins everything yeah so so how come we didn't see at uh, the beginning of life on earth how come we didn't see picard and q there i was they were on the other side i was <laughs> oh, okay they were on the other side of the hill i was expecting yeah. yeah, somebody will cg that someday i was i was expecting the <laughs> like the tar creature what was it targus or whatever his name oh, oh yeah the one from mm-hmm. next generation skin of death, of death come up out of the mud <laughs> out of the primordial ooze. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a good gag at the beginning of this where Tom Baker's the doctor flicks through a book and Romana asks, was it any good? And he says, it was all right. It was a bit flabby in the middle that David <laughs> Tennant would rob later on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, I remember that, yeah. That David um, Tennant would steal that gag. Well, you know, I'm certain there's a lot of, you know, in the current series of Doctor Who, there's a lot of quote-unquote homages to our classic stuff. They should. It's and the I same person, like, you know. Sometimes people make the same jokes over and over again. There's a different crowd there, you know. He might as well flip through the book and make the same joke, you know. Which is perfectly fine, and I like that as a callback. But I, I also want people to realize that it was done before, and sometimes, you know, it was done better. Uh, I, I, I love the new series. But I, I wish a lot more people would take a look back at some of this stuff. A lot like uh, what people um, should do with Star Trek. You know, don't just look at the either the new movie or the next generation. 
back and look at the classic stuff and find the good in that because there's a ton of good stuff. Well, that's where the good and the new stuff sprang from. So, you know, I, I mean, to me, I Tom Baker will always be my favorite doctor so far. I mean, uh, you know, I got to keep an open mind to any new doctors. But I thought Tom Baker was the perfect. He was like, he was like a little younger than than the average doctor before that. He had a, that set. He had a little bit of Bugs Bunny and a little bit of like Tom Jones added in. A little bit of like ladies and just sort of. That that uh, what did they I I read somewhere he was like a <coughs> star Doctor Who or he was you know he was huge if you grew up in the seventies which I did he was huge he was very gregarious he was very free with his time with children he would regularly sign autographs the Doctor who on earth is Tom Baker because oh. he knew the kids didn't care about him right right he wanted to meet the Doctor. And he was he was huge. It's it's hard to describe the rock star status that he had in the seventies to people like me who were born in seventy two. He was the doctor. I, I didn't know that there were other ones until I discovered the pocket novels, the target mm-hmm. novels in primary school. And throughout the seventies, the show regularly got in between ten and fourteen million viewers which was a phenomenal amount of viewers, even for the time when we only had three channels. Yeah. He was, it was such a popular show. And this is, this is largely the best episode of a season that is largely regarded as the worst season they ever did. And yeah. certainly the episodes around this is Nightmare of Eden after this. I think it's, um, uh. is appallingly <laughs> bad. Uh, the one before it, the one before it was uh, Destiny of the Daleks. And Your Destiny of the Daleks says, uh, completely the undermines pit. the Daleks. Creature of the Pits are awful. And it, this is one of those where amidst that god-awful season, you've got this one diamond mm-hmm. against the odds emerged as just being a class act from beginning to end. The location filming, Tom Baker and Lala Ward's off-screen relationship plays into the on-screen. Oh, you can see that so for yeah. sure. Yeah. So you've not got any of that that you would have in season 18, where apparently when they'd had a huge blazing row, at the last minute the scriptwriters were required to rewrite scenes so Tom and Lala didn't interact <laughs> because it was just a nightmare on the set. Yeah. Whereas in this one, everyone seems to be loving it. The dialogue's wonderful. There's the lovely bit in the first episode where they're on top of the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yes. And, uh, and Romana says to the doctor, uh, the doctor says to Romana, should we fly? And she says, yes, that would be ostentatious. Yeah. Let's take the stairs. <laughs> Which was just genius. And Adams's dialogue, there is a criticism of Douglas Adams that he's got like five ideas. And that's, it's it's a criticism I take on board because if you've ever read Dirt Gently's Holistic Detective Agency it takes pr- there's an awful yeah. lot of this in Dirt Gently and an awful lot of his other serial Sharda that was never finished there's a lot of that in Dirt Gently but these four episodes are just perfect I watched these with Angela and she sat there originally not taking any interest and then slowly she's been dragged mm-hmm. into it because now, the story is so good well, it's just full of, and it's full of some just wonderful lines, not just for Doctor Who, but for anything like, uh, you know, where, where where he calls 19, you know, he's like 1979. She's like, oh, is this a good year? You know, he was comparing years to table wines to wine. or to wines. Yes. And she's like, well, 1979 is more of a table wine than, 
you know. But that's that's awesome, and it uh, actually works. <laughs> it still works in context. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of little lovely throwaway gags like that, isn't there? There's there's a number of them between Romana and Duggan, where she will just insult him. Yeah. And he won't realize that she's insulting him. He's completely unaware of it, and 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 it's and you could tell all you could tell that all the actors involved probably saw the script and were like, "Oh, good!" And they have great. They're having fun with it. Obviously, like you know, Doctor Who and Romana are having fun with each other. You could tell they're just. you, You could tell something's going on because they're just too having too much fun and too delighted in each other's company, you know. Well, and who's especially having fun with it, I think, is our uh, main baddie, played by Julian Glover, of uh, Scaroth, or the Count, who is just over-the-top uh, classic well, evil. Mm-hmm. He's just well, wonderful. Gloriously over-the-top, mm-hmm. isn't he? He has, mm-hmm. some wonder- he has some wonderful lines as well. My favorite being, my dear, nobody could be as stupid as he is pretending yes which just yes. <laughs> his delivery of that line is just sublime well he's a master of he's also he's a full actor in in for campy stuff without making it too campy he's got mm-hmm. and i noticed he's got this posture that that rigid you know regal posture where one one hand is sort of on your hip and one hand is sort of clutched to your chest with probably a snifter of brandy in it and your back is arched straight and he did that in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark too he had that you know he was playing an Aryan very proud Aryan and that very Riga and this he was you know a superior life form and so he just exudes it from his entire posture and everything it's just wonderful but it pass it can pass off as just sort of a snotty rich guy too you know well and what's great is he also pulls that off and i i'm assuming it's him under the mask he oh, also pulls only that... in the last scene oh really yeah he... only oh, at the very end is it julian glover in the mask because he didn't okay. wear the mask so it wouldn't interfere with his performance. yeah yeah you know what okay. i call bullshit on that I'm he betting, didn't want to wear the mask. Yeah, I'm betting he was like, I'm not wearing one of the... No, I'm not wearing a silly rubber mask. I'm an actor! That's what I picture. And then they, and that's the story that went out is, well, it would perform, uh, you know, bother his performance as an actor. Oh, yeah, well, how is it going to do with the performance of the guy who's playing you? So that guy's got to no. do a crappy performance of you through the mask? Come on. He didn't want to put that silly mask on because he's... The mask is brilliant it is just it is so simplistic just this eye in the head of this sort of green well somebody had a bottle of like liquid rubber and just poured it around a head shape mold you know and did that little wiggly wiggly planted an eye in it but stick an eye in there when when he pulls his human (laughs) when he pulls his human face off you can see the rubber mask under it almost coming off with it, you can mm-hmm. see the neck part. You know, they they were very careful to keep the neck part out of frame. There's probably a few outtakes where you see. Well, you can see the human head underneath it. If you look through in between it, you can see the face. Yeah. and you know, and and he'll pull his aha, pull his head off, and and, and be the alien underneath. And somehow, the head underneath Which, is way bigger than, way larger than the one that mm-hmm. was on top of it. It's awesome. It's classic. And there was a wonderful reveal of him back in in Leonardo's time, where you see him in silhouette, and I don't know my Doctor Who villains 
well enough. But who is the Doctor Who villain? He's got a sort of lumpy head that's sort of... Do you know who I'm talking about? He, he almost looks like a thumb. <laughs> a Santarin? A Santarin. Yeah. looks like a Santarin in silhouette there. And when you see it just before it goes to the beer at the end, you think, oh, there's a Santaran alien behind this somehow. But then when he walks out, it's just he's got an old style hairdo. Oh, you mean when he's standing in the doorway? The doorway. You, when you see oh, okay. He looks yeah. like one of those aliens. He looks like Which... the shape of their head. And I was thinking the first time I saw this, oh, it's one of those guys is behind all this too, or somehow fighting the other guys or something. And then he walked. I don't know if they did that on. Pur- I hope if they did that on purpose, it was brilliant. Mm. But which, which actually is, is kind of. In, uh, it's interesting that you say that because often there, there's been a few times that the Santarans have dabbled with uh, time experiments. Mm-hmm. So that would kind of fit with that. But in that scene, uh, when he walks in and he's in the 16th century. And he actually says the doctor's name. I so wanted to have him say Jones at the end of it. What are you doing here, <laughs> Dr. Jones? <laughs> Did you notice that in... Oh, sorry, Sean. Um, no, go ahead. In, I noticed that uh, in his 16th century counterpart and in his modern day one in 1979, well, modern then, um, all his accessories were green. His ascot, his handkerchief, the drink he had, the ring he wore, and of course his head, the bracelet. And then in the 16th century, his outfit is green. His, his everything is green in on the scroll. Well, of course he has a green head, but uh, his I, drink. I, yes, yes, his his drink and his, his robe. How about drink. that? How about that fantastic bathrobe? Yeah, With, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'd not noticed until you pointed that out. But I've got the episode playing as we're talking about it. If and he's just got to that scene where he's drinking that drink that's bright green. <laughs> Everything is green. He's he, Listen, he's a superior race. He's classy. That stuff matters to superior races, you know? That color-codedness. He, he knows how to accessorize. Yes. That's what separates <laughs> those alien how... species from us. Those, in, those interdimensional, intergalactic alien species is, is, you know, I mean, they look at our fashion industry and they just, you know, they, they think it's like it's cave paintings to them. He just lifts, he just lifts his little tentacle and sips his green drink and laughs. <laughs> and <laughs> really, though, really, they're, na- I, I mean, they're really named the Jaggeroff. The Jagger. The Jagger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't get over that. I, that is that has something to do with alcohol and caffeine, right there. That's the, there's no <laughs> way that was, I, you know. When I was thinking about it, I was like, ah, you know, this is an older show. Maybe they, and it's like 1979. N- Douglas Adams. No, he knew what he was writing when he named the alien yeah. race the Jagger off. Well, he couldn't call him the wanky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually it, it's 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 more obs- like. That's that's the funny thing is you could say wank like all you wanted in America and it just seemed like a kind of like cute British term. Nobody really associated with the actual act of wanking. They didn't know it was oh you you know they just thought it was you just called someone a wanker. Whereas probably the Jaggeroff didn't play as obscenely in Britain as it did here. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, I liked that the count quickly realized the doctor is as smart as he is 
He would never admit he was smarter, but initially he plays him as being a bit of a lunkhead. And it's only when he, he realises the Doctor's smart that he starts treating him seriously as a threat. Well, I think he may have gotten the idea that the Doctor's smart uh, when he uh, nicked the uh, little bracelet, the bracelet that the Countess was using at the, uh, at the Louvre. Yeah. You know, he, he obviously knew that he wasn't an idiot, but he the Doctor was portraying himself as kind of... Well, just not kind of there to kind of uh, deceive the count. It was the doctor is very, the, especially the Tom Baker doctor is very Columbo-like. Takes the bu- yes. takes the bumbling approach, but and and he's also got that sort of Jedi philosophy of like, get yourself into trouble and let them capture you. <laughs> get captured mm-hmm. so you can go in and figure out what's going on, but the. Anytime you see somebody's got Doctor Who and they're going to go lock him up, he's always just entirely in control of the situation. He's always just like, all right, well, let's go get locked up now. You know, I guess that's the next thing that we do right on schedule. Speaking of Star Wars and the fact that this was written in, you know, was broadcast in 1979 after Star Wars, in the opening scene, um, the off-screen voices that are talking to Scaroth are saying, "Help us, Scaroth! You're you're our only hope." I was hearing, "Help us, Obi Wan Scaroth! <laughs> Scaroth, you're our only hope." <laughs> very... And presumably, Julian Glover would have filmed Empire Strikes Back not long before this. Hmm. True. Even though it was only released in May of eighty, he probably filmed Empire before he filmed this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to mention, and we'd be remiss if we didn't have the wonderful cameo in the uh, episode of uh, Eleanor Braun and John Cleese as the uh, as the uh, basically the art critics at the uh, at the Louvre, uh, and of course the Doctor decided where's the best place to land the TARDIS right in the middle of the Louvre where everyone could take a look at it and think of it as an art project. And uh, I've got to ask, was um, John Cleese basically brought in because he was a good friend with Adams. He was filming yeah. there that day, and they talked him into it. I heard was the story. You know, the, he knew him text, and said, "Hey, you know." The text commentary on the DVD says he was next door editing Faulty Towers. He wasn't filming. Okay. But yeah, Adams Adams worked with him at Footlights in the sixties, and Douglas Adams has the distinction of being the only Python, the only non-Python to write a Python sketch. So they did know each other, and he was just there, and they brought him in. But his appearance wasn't advertised. It was one of those cameos that just smacks you in. The, oh, look, it's John Cleese. It wasn't plugged or anything. He was just in there at the end. And it's a lovely little scene at the end where they're, they're looking at the TARDIS and going, the very fact that it doesn't belong here is exactly why it should be here. And it's mm-hmm. a typical of pretentious art students. It's brilliant. Well, the reaction is, the, yeah, the reaction is best because, you know, you, 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 know you, you see the setup of it and it's all about how are they going to react to this? Are they just going to be a gog or whatever? But they just go along with it. You know, they're not going to let themselves be be outdone by the art but you know have their minds boggled by the art they're just like exquisite <laughs> exquisite exactly it's, it's genius it's a it's a wonderfully constructed script and that stuff was a bit that stuff was a wasn't as you know these days little little un uncredited cameos and surprise visits and stuff are, have become sort of a, a staple and stuff people love that you know Easter eggs thrown in, you know. There's even a name for it now, 
But back then, I remember seeing this when it first came out, and I didn't like this when I when I was a little kid and I saw it. I was I didn't get it, and and I was even a fan of Douglas Adams, but I didn't sniff him out, you know, from the dial. Not now that I know, it's so easy. There's it, the, just the line where Duggan goes, you know, I used to work on you know divorce. <laughs> divorce investigations and it was nothing like this you know that's right out of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy you know it's right uh it's it could have come out of the mouth of arthur dent you know or you're a beautiful woman probably that's my yeah probably you're a beautiful woman probably and he just slips it right by and you can see her just go ooh, and then like slowly go hmm uh the 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 cliffhanger at the end of part one is we've discussed him ripping his face off is uh, it's i think that's a great cliffhanger yes the mask's wonky yes you can see the human face underneath it but when you're six years old that's a great cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. and this was one of this was one of my earliest memories of the show him the scaroth ripping his face off along with the triffid type plant thing eating the house from the seeds of doom oh right right they, they were the two things I remembered from being very little. Now, now um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go on. The, the, now, does do you guys do this when you watch? Okay, when you see the end of the show and you see him pull his mask off and you hear the when you go to watch the next episode and they show that scene again, does your brain put that sound effect? There. Yes. When uh, that happens to me every time, and they uh, and they always take you know they don't have that sound effect in there. They just cut to the next scene. But my brain's always going. Bing! Because we are nothing but Pavlov. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that noise <laughs> is such you... a great Pavlovian noise too. It's just like uh, drip, drip, drip. <laughs> it's because you're so used to it being. Though. Yeah. Well, it's uh, such a great a dramatic the... cue, too. It's the cue to go like, oh, no! You mean I've got to wait another week? Yeah, it's almost the equivalent of someone going, whoa! Oh, great. Now now the next time I watch it, I'm going to have Keanu Reeves. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's I, I... hope not. The, the little things at the beginning of the next episode, so episode two always began with the end of episode one and Vicky Verke, that I don't understand those as adults because they don't bring you up to speed with the story. They're not a previously on Doctor Who. So really, if you've missed part one of this, you've no idea what's going on. Well, yeah, because you, think you only get like the first, you know, or the last couple of minutes of the show. Yeah, which... of the previous episode. But did they do that just to pad the show to stretch out time? Well, the for... cliffhanger was always the, like in 30 serials, to bring you back next week. But they never made any pretense to bringing you up to speed. Right, right. In no. episodes. I mean, this is incredibly tightly constructed, this show. There's no padding in it. Like, occasionally you'll get to part three of a four-parter, or particularly part four of a six-parter. And essentially, it's just running around. The Doctor will get caught. The Doctor will escape romana will get caught romana will escape and they're just padding it out there's none of that in this it's a very tightly constructed script but if you've only seen part two you've no idea what's going on because it's only at the end of part four that the beginning of part one makes sense Mm -hmm. it's only Mm -hmm. when they explain it all in part four that you realize in your head all right that shit blowing up Right, I get what he's doing. Yeah, now. and that and it, it makes it really does give the audience credit for having intelligence, not only to follow mm-hmm. the plot, but 
but to follow it for four weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to say. I always thought when I was a kid that they didn't do that because the British people were just smarter and that they that that that, that, that they realized, oh, this is in four parts. You know, we're so, uh, uh, you know we Americans like when we we pick up a book, we just open it up and start reading. It might be in the middle of chapter three. We open up the book, and then after a while, we go, "This book sucks. This doesn't make no sense." And then we feed it to our kids. And so I always figured in Britain, you know, they they did things like in logical order and went to part one first, and and that everybody knew that Doctor Who was, oh yes, it's a serialized show. And then they said, oh yes, I know what that word serialized means. Whereas in America, they would be just like, it's food, I can I eat it? And <laughs> Well, that's, but how did you get this? Did you get this weekly? Or did you ever see that? Did you get them it was on PBS. films? No, it was on PBS and it depended. Because when it was on PBS, it was, they, they would show it daily. So... They would get a season of it and they would just run the season daily and repeat it over and over again until, but when it came time for them to raise money for PBS, because it was a publicly funded, um, uh, network, uh, commercial free doctor who was what kept PBS alive. The doctor who fans were rabid. So when it came fundraiser time, they would ju- they would have marathons so you would see so they would just show they would show an episode and then somebody would come and beg money for you for 20 minutes oh yeah 20 yeah. minutes but if you gave them money you got doctor who merchandise books big coffee table books um book bags and stuff and there was no doctor who anything as far as merchandise goes in America, and we're Americans, we need to buy something. <laughs> you need to buy. That we stuff. can hump. Yes. Yeah, or eat. We, we have to hump it or eat it, but we need to buy it first. <laughs> and, and that we was the it. only we way you could everyone. get Doctor Who stuff. So people are like, I will give money to PBS. I, I always turn it off during the things, but I used to beg my parents, like, if you're going to give money to PBS, give it to them during Doctor Who. But they didn't. They always did during Nova. <laughs> See, we had loads of merch. We had a Mego Doctor Who doll of Tom Baker. We had a Tardis uh-huh. play set that he went in. Uh-huh. Weetabix would wear little cardboard cutout stand ups of the villains. Oh, you lucky but jammy bastards. When we got it repeated, if we got repeats, they would edit them together as films. I remember seeing Genesis of the Daleks for the first time around Christmas time, and they'd edited it together as like a two hour movie. Well, see, that's how I got um, down down here in Florida. Um, all ours, we didn't have – it wasn't serialized. We got them as a full – all edited together as one episode, and it usually came on Saturday night. We would have uh, uh, Blake 7 or uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Did you get Blake 7? Yes, sir. Yes, we did. Brilliant. Excellent. Yes. We, Blake 7. We didn't get that uh, on, on our PBS, but we got Hitchhiker's Guide too. Mm-hmm. And then we would have Doctor Who, and then when they did Pledge Drive Night, they would usually have two back-to-back um, full stories, all all episodes, and then you know that would take up like a five six hour block with all the all the hawking for for cash, in, you know. But but yeah, that's that's how I saw them in as full episodes. And we my channel down here actually got 
the John Pertwee stories. I saw Peter Davidson, um, Colin Baker, and and Sylvester McCoy um, here here on PBS. The the funny thing is, is John Davidson was kind of a big deal in America when he became Doctor Who because. Um, what was Peter, all, Davids- or Peter Davidson? Sorry, John Davidson's yeah. the American actor, but uh, he he had done uh, all things great and small, the, the upstairs, downstairs, it, yeah, and those were those were very popular on PBS here. So he was actually like when there was a new Doctor. I remember I was like, oh, I don't want a new Doctor. I like Tom Baker, and it's like, wait, I know this guy. I remember him as the you know the lead in as the veterinarian and I used to read those books when I was a kid, watch that show every week too. So, Oh, it was, it was, it was hard for me to embrace Peter Davidson. And and for years I'd never seen the final Tom Tom Baker one. I had missed it. I had missed uh, Logopolis Logopolis. and I went, and the next week I, I came back, there's a new doctor. I'm like, what? So it wasn't. I had to go like all through the whole Peter Davidson, and then they went back through the Tom Baker ones, and then finally, like years later, I got to see because this is before the internet days. I got to see Tom Baker's final performance. It was sad. Yeah, because because <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain now. I mean, Tom Baker is still the longest running Doctor. I mean, there's some arguments that Sylvester McCoy did it for longer. I'm sorry, I don't count the fact that he was off her for six odd years as him being the Doctor. Right, three years, and yeah, then he did yeah. a regeneration. And there's some that will argue because Paul McGann never regenerated, he's the longest running doctor, to which I say bollocks. So Tom Baker is still the longest running doctor. But they didn't make a big deal about the regenerations in the show. I mean, they made a big deal about it in terms of the press. It would always be announced on the news, mm-hmm. Tom Baker is leaving Doctor Who and he's being replaced by this guy. It just happened. The actual show. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, and it's the it, last second of the last episode it was never so dramatic and explosive literally like it is yeah, now, you did, now. Uh, and, yeah you didn't get the you know you know half and half the end of a series that uh they did with the uh david Tennant regeneration i mean it, that thing went on longer than the ending the of end the of Lord the return of the, of the king yeah <laughs> god what? it was about time he went so i was glad to see the back of him Plus it, yes. plus, it never blew apart the TARDIS and reconfigured it. That's uh, something totally new for the new era. You know, the the TARDIS never changed itself because the Doctor regenerated. Yeah, well, no, it, up, there'd be updated, there'd be cosmetic updatings, but it never radically altered from one set to another. Right. Yeah, there was the time the the series were the Doctor and I think it was still Sarah Jane would use the alternative control room. Right, right. The one that was all steampunk looking. Yeah, it was all steampunk and Victorian, which mm-hmm. kind of influenced the Paul McGann TARDIS. But Tom, Tom Baker, Tom Baker's performance in this one is fantastic. And it was, it, the, there's, there are rumors that they are considered canceling the show when Baker announced that he was leaving because... They, did, they instituted a new producer in season 18 and Tom's influence on the show would become more and more the more popular he became, sometimes to the detriment of the show. Now, it works in this one because he's got a good script. When he wouldn't have a good script, he would frequently toss that in the bin and ad lib. And nobody was reining him in. And he was frequently making it a nightmare to work. So, And every year he got to the point now where he would go in the office and say, I think it's time uh, that I left. 
and the producer would say, no, 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 stay. But this time he went into John Nathan Turner, who was the new producer of season 18, and John Nathan Turner just said, yeah, I think you're right. And he phoned up the script editor who said, quick, announce it to the press before he can change his mind. <laughs> nice. Now, that could be apocryphal, but I, if it isn't... I don't know. That sounds about right. Story. That happens a lot of times, you know, and, and maybe Tom Baker knew it. Someday they're going to say, okay, but, you know, but it, until they do, I'll probably get more money each time. <laughs> so it's interesting that this, there is this gem in what is a truly appalling season of the show, in that the BBC have never been proud of Doctor Who. They have this stick-the-nose-up-in-the-air reputation that we produce wonderful period dramas. But they were embarrassed by the fact the biggest selling mm -hmm. export and most popular show was this mm -hmm. chintzy little science fiction thing. And in season 17, they slashed the budget. So the fact that this episode looks at good, as good as it does means that the rest of the stories in this season look like crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one was pretty low budget besides just this being in Paris. This one was just a few little, a few sets. and Yeah, it sounds like they were getting the Star Trek season or treatment, you know? The, yeah. The, the just like, ah, well, it's, yeah, it's popular with, popular with the kids and, you know, but it's, it's that, it's that genre bias you know that stephen king gets stephen king's like one of the most fertile writers you know of the 20th century and he's always going to get stuck as a, a a horror writer you know a populist you know junk writer and it's it, it, you would think i wonder if the bbc has more of an appreciation for doctor who now if it's gone respectable you know no, yes, it's probably for the garlic as you walk through the main lobby of the BBC television centre now. Well, it's probably become a big cash cow sure. for them. It's yeah, always well, been. It's, um, the budget has finally reached its imagination mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Even though we've seen that slashed this year, we're only getting seven episodes and the 50th anniversary special and a Christmas special. We're not getting an eighth series this year. Well, the budget's gone up, me. but they're still using really the lower end of a lot of the special effects stuff. It's just that special effects have come to the point now where you can do some really nice CG for relatively cheap, you know? Yeah. So, so they still rely a lot on filming it creatively and filming it well to make it, but but yeah, the, today's production looks so much more cinematic than you know. I mean, in the old days, it was it was shot on video, so you had you could hear the echo, you you could hear the sound of a sound stage. You know, you could see the walls wobble when they opened the doors, and you know, it, notable in this episode when the count walks it through his double doors, yes, into his into his big <laughs> resplendent dining room, the set wobbles, the whole set wobbles, yeah. And, uh, and when they were in the cell in the last episode, Duggan runs at the door to knock it down with his shoulder and the wall moves with the it. The whole wall moves with it. Yeah, that was. <laughs> and you can see the actor sort of going was, uh, I'll just go through with it. Yeah. And and, and, well, and that was a retake. And a lot of this, uh, this is also going back to original Star Trek. Like I watched this on Netflix and it was a, and, and I'd watched this about a year ago on YouTube, which was kind of a grainy you know, somebody got it off their video copy of it. And uh, and I didn't notice a lot of that stuff on that version. And on the old TV sets, when you'd watch it, you wouldn't see, like at the end when, uh, you know, he looks through the binoculars to, at the at the alien at the Jagaroff ship 
it's it's obviously a painting or, or that was like a freeze frame a freeze picture, frame yeah. video picture of the Jagaroff ship with a you know with a circle cut out moving around you know to do it but it didn't it looked real it 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 looked more real on the crappy YouTube video where you couldn't tell it was a freeze frame mm. well, that came about my TV too when I was a kid. The, the special effects footage was apparently filmed long before the studio footage. And when it came to do the studio footage, they didn't have the money to match the special effects footage. Mm. <laughs> so they had to cut some corners. Yeah. It does say hello to K9 when he goes into his turn. That's, that's, so the, well, that's the thing. It, that's the kiss off. You know, it was like if, if K9 was going to be in it, you would have seen him and you would have at least, I was wishing they would have at least dubbed in like doctor or something. Yeah. You know? they, his voice wasn't even there. Not even there. his voice was there. They could have just, you know, fully dead in. Hello, master. Yeah, exactly. Well, we received, they received some cl- complaints this season that it wasn't John Leeson doing K9's voice. So maybe they just didn't want to go. Did you just say something about like K9 is back in doctor who? No, well, he is. He well, up occasionally, but in yeah. this, in season seventeen, this one, K9's voice wasn't done by John uh, Leeson. It was oh. done by. Oh, really? And it was like when they changed Tweaky's voice in Book Rogers. It was just wrong. Yeah. Well, Mel Blanc was probably too expensive once that show. <laughs> I think he died. He died. That time. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, he probably and he was definitely too expensive. Or yeah, or he or he just couldn't. Do, oh, do, it do you anymore. know how much it co- would it cost to reanimate Mel Blank? No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and nobody wants undead Bugs Bunny after that. What's up, Doc? Bitty 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 bitty. <laughs> um, we've not discussed the brilliant scene where the Doctor goes back in time to get the Mona Lisa's. No, we definitely need to talk about that because that's that's the main uh, idea behind the yeah the, the scheme. Scott, I... so he goes back. So one of his splinters in time gets Da Vinci to paint multiple copies of the Mona Lisa. So they're all real; they're not fakes. But back in time, the Doctor writes, "This is a fake" on the canvas, and just leaves him a note saying, "Oh, just paint over it. Yeah, don't matter." Well, I like that he and Da Vinci have that kind of relationship, you know? Yeah, well, the Doctor and Da Vinci have this relationship. That's great. And it's carried on in the new series where we get the Doctor having that relationship with Vincent van Gogh. Mm -hmm. And he has uh, relationships with all these major... Uh, Earth characters from the past. It's really great. And uh, well, in, in this one, they have the original manuscript for Hamlet, and the Doctor says, "I recognize the writing." And she goes, "Shakespeare's." He says, "No, mine." Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's what I like about it. You, you get the impression. Well, they 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 even mention it in this one that their art and I, I I'm assuming Gallifrey is is made by computers. You know, what, what do you have computers making your art? And he's like, "Is that what it's like where you come from?" And they're like, "Yeah." And so. He's almost like somebody from the big city who's like appreciating a folk artist somewhere, you know, or a naive artist somewhere. He's he's just like, there's something about the handmade earth art that's you know special. So he's gone, you know, made a point of of checking, you know, make you. I that's sort of what I would do if I had a time machine. I would like to you know the da vinci's and stuff like that that would be the truly interesting people to 
to to visit and to form relationships with. But it's just so funny that it's portrayed as, you know, this person who operates on a cosmic level, you know, to the extent that you're not really sure. You know, this episode, you find out they can fly if they want. Um, if they want to. And, well, that's yeah, what I loved about this. Fans bit. of our art, I love that, and that's sort of like that's sort of like what America is. There's a lot of people who are like, oh, Americans, but man, people love our culture, you know. So, what I loved about this bit was that the stealing of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre was largely irrelevant. Right. He only he needed the real one so that he could sell the six fakes, so people wouldn't know that they didn't have the authentic one even though they still had a real one that's just a because brilliant he the money idea from all seven of them yeah. well yeah it was just a fantastic idea and there's that great scene in the middle of part two where scarlione discovers the doctor and romana and duggan have discovered his plan and the back and forth between tom baker and julian glover where julian glover's <laughs> answers are just no no yes and he's just <laughs> not giving anything away was, was brilliant oh, he's and like yes He's like, yes, you like cons- I, you're fond of concise answers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and Duggan hits him in the face, which is just absolutely fantastic. Even the doctor hits somebody in this episode, though. The doctor has been known to punch a few people when he has to. Yeah. John Pertwee was particularly good at punching people. <laughs> but oh, he, yes, he just he... did this little weird rabbit variation punch. Sort of almost like a Vulcan nerve pinch where he just knew the right place to tap him under the chin. Yeah. Uh, the one question I was left at the end of it, I mean, we've not got to the end yet, but I think it's worth discussing. Uh, um, his wife is played by Catherine Schell, who was probably best known for being Maya in Space 1999. Mm-hmm. She's surprised when he takes his mask off. Has she never noticed this when they were in bed together? Well, maybe money goes a long way and you just don't look for a things like that so they've been married for all these years and what she just assumed she was his beard maybe they i can't see that they consummated the marriage that's for sure oh yeah there's no around. (laughs) maybe there was a lot of jackarothan going on (laughs) because you do wonder does does Uh, you guys you guys you gotta suspend your disbelief everything is fully functional as long as that mask is on. The mask doesn't just fall off until he wants to tear it off. So he's probably done all kinds of all kinds of things. That's why she probably fainted. She probably was realized that was what I've been I've had you inside. Yes. <laughs> Plunk. You can understand why she'd be upset by that. Um you can imagine if they CGI'd this now, they'd probably make his eye blink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because that's totally what we'd want from a CGI version of this story. It would make it much better. Oh, it would. Even especially if you could still see the neck of the person underneath it. Yeah. Or they or or, or they they should do a new version with one of the new incarnations of the Doctor, where he sort of you know goes back into this adventure and then finds out under the alien mask there's another guy under it. Like a Chinese puzzle box. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just keep taking masks off. Old man Franklin. <laughs> I would have got away with it's, two if it wasn't for the doctor and his meddling companions. Old man Franklin, yeah. the janitor from the Louvre. <laughs> no, it would be John Cleese. Yes. <laughs> it was my greatest oh, art be... project ever. I was going to defeat Andy Kaufman. 
right, I, I've got a bit of Doctor Who nitpickiness. Now, in the beginning of this episode, and if you're you're up on some of your Doctor Who history, this season took place after they had done the key to time season. Yeah, and there's they even were... a line that says the randomizer isn't very picky. Okay, so weren't they using the randomizer so that the Black Guardian couldn't track them because they they wanted to go, they didn't want they wanted to randomly go to places. So if that's the case, how is the Doctor able to take the TARDIS? to 16th century Leonardo da Vinci, then come back, then go back in time to 400 million, to, to exact locations. I thought the randomizer prevented them from doing that, unless I'm just digging too deep. You Maybe just switched it off. off. Yeah. That was, then, that was my thought. But then wouldn't the Black Garden be able to track them? Well, presumably he, he can't just find them. He would have to be looking for them. And there's an awful lot of galaxy and time to be looking in. So if he just flicked the randomizer off to make that journey and then flicked it back on, right. maybe they wouldn't. Right, notice. unless it was some big coincidence or something. But if he didn't have it on all the time, he would leave more of a trail, you know, more of a cohesive trail. I don't remember if the other stories in the season mentioned the randomizer either. I know they mentioned it in season 18 that he disengages it. But I don't remember if in like Destiny of the Daleks or Creature from the Pit they mentioned the randomizer, do you? I think they I did because um, they they thought it was you know because I thought it was odd that they had the randomizer on, but they end up on Skeros. So the planet where the Daleks evolved is one of the places where the randomizer takes them to. So I thought that was kind of odd. And I do mm. think they did mention it in that episode. Right. So I, I I can't bring myself to watch much of season seventeen. Understandable. Well, that's got one of the best lines, uh, the best Dalek jokes that gets used by David Tennant later with uh, with the Dal. You know, if you're the most, if you're the uh, the master race of the universe, why don't you come up the stairs and catch me? And See, then I later, think that's undermining your villain. Well. Well, that but that comes back on the Doctor later when he's David Tennant and he said, or or is it no, or is it? Eccleston, Christopher when, Eccleston. And, and when he says that and the Dalek floats up the stairs <laughs> but he should know that because Sylvester McCoy saw flying Daleks in, in mm. Remembrance yeah oh, see that I've never seen that one see that's, that's well that's that's what a lot of the, one of the best things Russell T Davis ever did was make the Daleks scurry again mm-hmm. but it was this big thing over here that Daleks could fly now and I'm just sat there going did you never see that Sylvester McCoy oh, episode oh scary I thought you meant they were scurrying around. I'm like, no. the original Dalek scurried? Oh, I, I get it. You say I you understand do. words. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the English pronunciation. Yes. Of scurry. Isn't that something you get in an Indian restaurant? I think that's scurvy. <laughs> no, yeah, that's what you get from Indian <clears throat> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this before it gets too off the rails, and uh, just say that this is a great episode. Yes, that my voice can't fully <laughs> you know realize. But uh, we're gonna try and do this again, and we're gonna take a look at a bunch of Doctor Who episodes this year because we really need to celebrate the Doctor. It's it's his fiftieth year, fifty years of being on the air and on Jesus Christ. Sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, take us out. <laughs> <laughs>
Take us out, Andy. To celebrate the greatest fictional science fiction character that has ever existed. We have a few plans about what to talk about, and we're hoping to have a rotating chur of guests. But if, if you have, lovely listener, any particular preference for what you'd like us to discuss, we are keeping a tally. We definitely know we want to do the talons of Wang Chai. Yes! Definitely <laughs> touch upon that one. I've thrown out that the Paul McGann movie may be interesting to talk about, even though the episode itself is rather piss poor. Um, this is good. I've had the idea of for the month of April, which is the uh, the month that uh, uh, Elizabeth Sladen passed away. We do a kind of retrospective of her work and maybe look at the Sarah Jane adventures where yep. she met up with the Matt Smith doctor. Yeah, definitely. We talk about school reunion as well, which is a wonderful episode from the David Tennant run. So we've we've got a couple of plans. The plan is we're going to put one of these out every month in this the Doctor's fiftieth year. So we're probably celebrating it more than the BBC are. And the, probably there'll be some other other guests popping in too. Some some yep. some that we've talked to who will be in future shows who couldn't make it today, but will make it in the future. Definitely. We're going to have regenerating guest stars. <laughs> so, do you Hopefully want me to do you want me to take this out? Wait, wait. Does that mean I'm going to die? <laughs> yeah, but you can live on in another man's body. Oh. I don't know about you, but I love being in another man's body. All right. Well, I might want to be in another. Never. Sean, mind. you might have asked <laughs> the wrong person to take us out. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Thank Bye bye. Bye everyone. Bye bye. See you next time. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> oh, Christ <laughs> in heaven. Jesus Christ. Oh. I should just you know, ram a, a knife into my throat. I would sound better. can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling and it really helps us out. So please, 
Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. And this is your Uncle Don saying goodnight. Goodnight, little kids, goodnight. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards.